Whew, well, it feels good to come together and worship the Lord and just enjoy His presence. I'm so glad that you're here with us, uh, both in person and those of you who are uh, joining us online. Uh, we hope that you experienced His presence just as we did. Um, I'm excited to teach today, and I got what I thought was the message for tonight, and I kept got going. And it took a turn, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit that turned it, so now I'm extra excited. I was excited, and now I'm extra excited. And I'm hoping by the end you'll be excited too. Right now you're like, hmm, quietly staring. We'll see what happens. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of of the calling you have received. Now, this sentence reminds me of birthdays, and I'll tell you how. When I was growing up, and I, maybe this happened to you, but did you ever get a birthday present that was indicative of something else? So, example would be you're going through the presents and you open a box and it's all batteries. You're like, oh, this means there's more. Or maybe you turned 16 and you opened a little present and there were keys. Or, or maybe you opened a present and it was a bike helmet. You're like, oh, I don't have a bike yet. <laughs> so this must mean there is something else. L listen, let's read this scripture again. It says, I urge you to live a life worthy. He says, I urge you to be worthy of the calling you have received. He's, he's talking about being worthy, but of something you already have. Be worthy. So it's like, I'm, I'm exhorting you about something, but this is about something that you already have. He says, for the calling you have received. And then he says, oh, be completely humble. As in, like, don't get puffed up about this thing that you already have. This calling. And be patient, bearing with one another in love. Last week, we talked a lot about what it means to love your brother and sister in Christ. Especially when they don't agree with you about something. We learned that Paul didn't expect all Christians to agree 100%, 100% of the time on 100% of the stuff. He says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he says, there is one body... Let's see if you can spot the theme. And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when, didn't know that that Star Wars was a anyway, biblical reference. Then it says, when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul here wants us to be very, very clear about how many spirits, lords, and faiths are there? One. He says, keep the unity, recognize that we are a part of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. But... Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts, plural, to his people. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself 
gave the apostles. Now, before I get into some of the lists, I'm going to back up into verse 8, and it says that he gave gifts. We're talking about those callings and gifts that he talked about before. He said, live to be worthy of the calling that you have received. Don't let it go to your head. Work hard to make sure that you're humble about this calling that you have. And he says, everyone has been given the gift. Verse 7 in the NIV, which we read, says, but to each one of you grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In the King James, it says, but to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Again, it's singular. And that gift word is actually a different word than some of the other places where we see gift. That gift where we were given Jesus is a gift freely given and hence not acquired by merit or entitlement. It is an expressed, a brand of giving that highlights the beneficent desire of the giver. In other words, this is a gift you didn't deserve. Then he goes on and says that he gave gifts or presents to his people in verse 8. We got as far as verse 11, and he starts talking about, so Christ gave, him, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to, so the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers all have a purpose. It is to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Let's just read that again. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Some of us have grown up with the idea that the apostles, prophets, pastors, each of these uh, teachers, these gifts were like, those are the Christian superstars. Those are the people who do the Christian-y stuff. But what the Scripture says is, not that they are the superstars. The, the Bible says they are simply there so that his people. Raise your hand if you are a his people. That's all of us. All the way at home. That's you. We are all of us. Including me, who is also a pastor. But I am a his people. And my role as a pastor is to equip you. We've been talking about our focus these Wednesday nights being to equip us to live supernatural Christian lives. Part of that is acknowledging and recognizing and accepting that God has given you a call already. Already. Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the call, not the call you might someday eventually get. It said, the call you have, past tense, received. God has called you. And then he has put apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the body to equip you to serve in that calling. What for? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. How do we speak truth? In love. I keep pointing back to last week just a little bit. We speak truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ Jesus. From him, the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It says here that, we are, that the body is held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. You have a call. You have a purpose. I want you to look at Romans chapter 11, verse 29. It says, For the gifts and His call are irrevocable. You have a call. You have a purpose. His gifts and call are irrevocable. I've mentioned this before, but God gives us callings. He gives us gifts. I wish I could remember the exact numbers of, number of years ago. I want to say that it was in the late 90s. There was a singer who came here. Her name was Elizabeth. And she was a pastor's daughter singing in the church. She came and was a part of a concert. She wasn't very well known at all. She was part of a concert back in the ground floor. Today, the world knows her name. God gave her gifts. There was a calling on her life. Katy Perry changed her name. It used to be Elizabeth Hudson. She changed her name became famous, used that calling and gift that did not disappear and applied it outside of God's ideal purpose for that gift. God has given you gifts and callings and those gifts are irrevocable. Romans chapter 4, verse 6, or 4 through 6, says, Romans chapter 12, sorry, verse 4 through 6, says, For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. How many of us have been given a grace and a gift? Each. It says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. It goes on to talk about other gifts, but I want to pause for a minute. We have a tendency to think about our gifts um, in a comparative way. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, says this. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
He's about to talk about gifts again, and he starts it off talking about humility again, the same way that he's, he was talking about it back when we were looking in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, he started by saying, I urge you to live a life. And then verse 2, he says, be humble and gentle. In Romans, he's about to talk about your gifts, and he says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Why does he talk about this every time he goes to talk about the gifts that we have been given? Because he knows us and our nature. He says, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. He goes on to say, there are, but I want to pause. I want to read 2 Corinthians 10, 12 and insert that thought here. It says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. Here's the thing. We have a tendency to look at the different gifts, at the different callings. And if you've ever been to a church service where a missionary gets up and that missionary starts to tell stories about how they went to the other side of the world and they went into some place and they got to go to an area that had never heard about the gospel and they got to reach these people who were so profoundly in need and then they did that and you're just like, oh my goodness. If I'm not a missionary, I'm not anything. And then the next week, you're online and you see Todd White on YouTube. And he's walking around up to total strangers and, and just radically giving them the gospel and, and they're being healed right there. And you're like, man, if I'm not like shaking total strangers with the gospel, I guess I'm not a Christian. And then you hear about a prayer warrior who sits in their closet hours and hours a day and prays. And the different testimonies of what happens and, and how God wakes them up in the middle of the night and says, pray, and then later they hear what was happening in and, and some place far away at the very moment when they were praying. And you're like, oh, if I'm not praying... I remember as a kid growing up in the church being inspired over and over by different people and different strengths and different gifts and thinking at different times, if I want to be a good Christian, that's what I got to be. But I want to encourage you. You have a calling and a gift. Don't compare yourselves among yourselves. Don't get snooty going around acting like, hey, what? I figured out my gift, and you guys should all be like me. One of my best friends growing up, uh, <laughs> I'll just tell you a funny story uh, about him. So he bought a house in downtown Holland and was starting to remodel that home. And at the same time, he bought a ring and he got engaged. Um, and so he would go to work and his fiance would come and start getting ready. This is before they had gotten married. But so she, he's off at work and she would come and she would start working in the, the, the front, putting in flowers and, and doing all of this stuff. Well, the house was right next to uh, another home that was rented by a bunch of men from Mexico. When I say a bunch, a bunch. And they would sit out on the porch and one day, and they started like catcalling and saying some things that were inappropriate to his fiance, who was out trying to get the house ready for the wedding that was in a few weeks. She calls him all freaked out. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm here outside of our new house and I'm getting cat called and they're saying this and they're saying that. And, blah, blah, blah. and he got mad. 
He jumps in his truck, speeds towards home. He's going to give them what for. Now, my friend has a gift set and a calling. And as he gets closer to their home, the Holy Spirit starts working on him. And his gift and calling is one of healing. So he shows up at their house. Now, if you hear him tell the story, he'll tell you a list of all the things he thought he might do to these neighbors who were disrespecting his fiance. But he gets there. He goes up to the door, knocks on the door. They open. He steps right in. And he says, you know, hey, I'm from across the street. You guys were saying these things to my wife. I got really upset. I started driving over here, and I started to imagine all the things that I would do to you, and then I thought about the things you might try to do to me, and I thought, you know what? I'm ready for heaven. Are you? And then he said, he said, do any of you, oh, I forgot to mention, he walked in and turned their TV off. They were watching television. He went in, turned the TV off. Now he's standing in front of the freshly turned off television, talking to this room full of men. And he says, do any of you have pain right now? And they all point at one guy. He apparently had injured his knee. And my friend says, he says, God wants you to be ready, just like I'm ready. And to prove that you, he cares about you, he's going to heal your friend right now. He prays for that guy. He is healed on the spot. He starts going nuts. It's like, what is going on? And they're like, man, do you do this all the time? Do you like break in people's houses and like heal them and stuff? He says no. He, his, his wife, fiancé at the time, but they got married shortly after, never had any trouble. Those neighbors turned into their best watch guards. But I remember hearing that story. And I remember thinking, in a way, now, there's nothing about that story that nobody can do. Like, I'm not saying that you can't do that. But I remember feeling shamed. You know what? God's using me in these ways and these ways and these ways, but he's not using me in the same way that he's using my friend. You know? And if I am a good Christian, will I be used exactly the same way as they are? And God used that exact situation to teach me the lesson that I want to teach today. And that is, we are all different parts. Yes, God's power is there and available to you. But here's what I need you to understand. You can't go around looking at everybody else, comparing yourself and saying, oh, I'm a bad Christian because I'm not there. Now, here's the thing. That isn't an excuse to sit and do nothing. There's a balance here. This isn't, you know what, you're different than they are, so you get to do nothing and it's going to be okay. No. The Bible says that you're my sheep know my voice. God has been speaking to you about something in some way. You're responsible to do that. If God ever tells you to walk bravely into your neighbor's house, do it. Do it. But if that's not what God's telling you, don't compare yourself with the person who he said that to. Seek out the gift and the calling that you have. When we were talking, I was talking to the team that, that helps to lead the Wednesday night services, and we were talking about when we start to talk about equipping ourselves for ministry. One one of them, after the meeting, pulled me aside. He said, you know, when we talk about this, that's all good. But sometimes I, I feel like 
that's not where my passion is. I have a passion to serve. And I said, I wish you'd brought that up in the main meeting because you have a point. When we come and we talk about walking out a supernatural Christian life, I don't want anyone to go away thinking, okay, there is a cookie-cutter call and, a, and, and gifting that every one of us is going to have. That's not the case. God has given you a specific calling and anointing, and that anointing and that calling are irrevocable. The extrovert who approaches people at the mall is no better than the introvert who prays in their home every day. The person who serves at the food bank is no better than the person who pickets in front of the abortion clinic. People have been called to do different things. Do not let the devil compare you and make you feel like your calling is different. So let's continue verse 5 in Romans chapter 12. So in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given. Notice again that's past tense. According to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance to your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. We have so many different callings. In Romans chapter 12, in Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12, there are 16 different spiritual gifts listed. Can we get that list up here? While they work on possibly putting up that list, I'm going to read them. Administration or leading. Apostleship, pioneering. Discernment, encouraging and exhorting. Evangelism, faith, giving. Do you realize that giving is a spiritual gift? Giving is a spiritual gift. Now here's the thing. What do you need in order to give? You've got to have something. I'll never forget going in for a job interview at a Christian businessman's business. A multimillionaire. Walking in to his conference room. On the wall of his conference room were pictures from around the world. Kids surrounding a well that they had donated in Africa. Orphanages that they had paid for in Haiti. And all of these different things. And I began to talk to this Christian businessman. And he said, you know, we do this and we do that. And he was telling me about his business. And then he paused and he said, but this is why. And then he pointed to the pictures that were up in his business. Now, most of us, if we ran into this person, heard about this person, we would think, oh, millionaire. But see, the truth is, he was a multi-given ear? How do you call that? He had the gift of giving. But in order to exercise the gift of giving, he also had a gift of getting. And God had seen that he could get it through him, so God was continuously getting it to him, and he was constantly blessing the kingdom of God. Now, 
when he sat in these pews, which he has. We may have looked right past him, thinking he's not a missionary, he's not an apostle, he's not a pastor, he's not a preacher. Oh, but the lives that have been changed through his ministry of giving perhaps exceed the lives I've touched preaching and missionarying. But again, it's not about comparison. But I, I just want to encourage you that some of these listed there that don't fall under what we usually think as, as Christian offices have just as much power for the people who are called to them as anything else. Hospitality. One of these days I want to do a message just on hospitality. We don't, we don't seem to, I mean, that used to be a big thing. It seems to be less so in our society today. But it is a spiritual gift. Pastor or shepherd, prophecy, perceiving, teaching, serving, serving. The Bible says, when you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. To Jesus, serving is no small matter. Not at all. And when we exercise that, when we find it doesn't, it doesn't have to be something noteworthy, something impressive, a large amount, a large number. That person doesn't have to be the parent of the next president of the United States. It doesn't have to be impressive. God says the least one is as if you served me directly. Serving, showing mercy, wisdom. The other thing that I felt like the Holy Spirit impressed me strongly to say is to go back to the scripture in Romans eleven twenty nine and say that God's gifts and calls are irrevocable. Another translation says without repentance. Some of us here felt a call, felt something that we were supposed to do years ago. And we believe that we missed the boat. We missed the boat. I'm reminded when I was in high school, um, it amuses me now to look back on it more than it amused me at the time. But apparently, my parents were on a tight budget or something because they decided to rent out a room in our house. And for a number of years, we had several different people who came and rented this one little room in our home. And one of those ladies was a, a woman by the name of Lynn. When she came to rent from us, I don't know exactly, but... Um, I was a young teenager, 13, 14. I think she was in her late 40s, early 50s. When she was 19, got out of high school, she went to Bible school, felt a calling to be a missionary, came back from the, mission, from the Bible school, got a job, needed a car, got a loan, bought a car, needed to pay it off, Worked for a few years, then she needed a different car, then just went along living life like most people do. In her particular case, she never got married, didn't have kids. Uh, she was, as I said, late 40s, early 50s, single lady, thought that life had pretty much passed her by. And she was just treading water, just doing, doing life. Thought, you know, God had a call for me 
missed him. Well, it just so happened that the summer um, that she was there, our family decided to drive um, to Mexico for a vacation. And vacation in our family, that meant going to different places where we'd preach and then having adventures on the way. And uh, so we went to, to Guadalajara and you know, again, I wasn't a part of any of those conversations, but somehow it was decided she would come along. And so she came along, got down on vacation to Mexico. And one of the places that we stopped was a church, and that church um, had a school, and that school needed a teacher. She didn't come home. She ended up staying for years in Mexico, fulfilling the call that she had seen on her life 25 to 30 years earlier. She thought that it was over, but that calling was there. Now, many times we define exactly how we expect God's calling to play out. And sometimes we're right. Sometimes it varies. But that calling is still there. I want to encourage you that you are not disqualified. Some of you are thinking, but you don't know what I did. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I'm at. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. When Jesus went to his hometown, the people looked at him and said, hey, we remember seeing him in the streets and doing this. And doesn't his mom and dad live down the street and his brothers and sisters, you know, they, we, we eat at the restaurant together. We, go, we know them. Can't possibly be some, anything special about him. We know too much. The term is familiarity breeds contempt. Oftentimes, it's hardest for us to recognize calling on the people that we know the best. Do you want to know who you know the best of the best? You. You know you. And the devil will use that against you, and he will try to convince you that you are no longer worthy of the calling that God has given you, and that is baloney. Paul, in the first verse that I read, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that mean? That means that at any time you can pick up your head, pick up your feet, and move towards that calling that you have. In the last few minutes, I'm going to share a little bit from my own life. And I felt like God wanted me to share this with you guys today. So, growing up, I knew. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to serve in ministry from the age of five. When I was 13, I started going on mission trips. That was what I had a passion to do. I started teaching in, in, in mountain villages in these tiny churches where most of those places, had the, the pastors had never graduated high school, much less been to Bible school. And my dad said, in the land of the blind, the Cyclops is king. And he said, go. And I would spend my summers preaching in those little tiny villages because the little that I knew was more than the little they knew. And God used me and grew my gift. And I worked there and I grew up and became a missionary and got married and had four kids and came back from the mission field and was pastoring here on staff. And at that time, my wife 
uh, was having a rough time. And I'll leave most of her details out of the story, but she didn't want me to be in ministry anymore. And so I stepped out. I put the, the family first. And some of you know the story, some of you don't. But after 12 years of marriage and four kids, she left, insisted on a divorce. I never wanted it. But I can't make choices for her. Within 90 days of the divorce being final, she was pregnant with someone else for some other, for another child that she now raises on her own on the other side of, of Grand Rapids. I prayed. I said, God, if, if, if there's to be restoration, tell me. If not, because I'll wait, but if not, release me. And I felt released. But I kept thinking, well, I'm probably disqualified from what God wants to do with my life. And there are many Christians, many entire denominations that talk about that. And I'm going to take some scripture here and we're going to look. There is a verse in 1 Timothy that says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And because of that verse, there are many denominations that say you can never pastor if you've ever been divorced and remarried. I am happy to say years down the road, um, met and married my wife Emily um, and we have uh, she also was longer story but abandoned by her uh, first husband we have two kids there four kids here we're a blended family of six and the Bible says there that one little bit and People have said, well, in a time of polygamy when that was written, the concept is you can only have one wife at a time. Nobody applies that to widowers. If you were married once, your wife dies, you're married again, how many wives do you have? One. But there is some confusion, and I'm going to, to clear a little bit of this up. Um, Mark chapter 10 10 through 12 says this. It says, And in the house his disciples asked him again the same matter. And he said to them, Whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. This came after they had had a conversation with the, with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus. And they talked about that. And Christianity has looked at that and said, how in the world could it be adultery to remarry unless you're still married? Because what is adultery? What is adultery? Adultery is a relationship with someone else when you're married. So if, having, if divorcing someone and marrying someone else is adultery, well then... You must not be married. And so this idea that God does not recognize divorce was born. Originally in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I'm not going to read it, but verses 1 through 4 is the original explanation of divorce. And in the original explanation of divorce, maybe I should read it. It says, when a man has taken a wife and married her and it's come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. The original purpose and result of divorce in the Bible was that it ended the marriage and someone was free to get remarried. Then why, why, did Jesus say that to leave someone to marry another through divorce and remarriage was adultery? This is the same conversation that he had going with the disciples when he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, whoever says to someone, Raka, basically insults them strongly, wishing they could kill them, they have already committed murder in their heart. And then the, disciples, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, can we divorce for any reason? And he says, what God has joined, let no man separate. <gasps> what does that mean? And then he says, if you divorce, the scripture says, and marry another. I believe it would be better translated to marry another. He says, you have committed adultery. One of two things happened here. One of two. Either Jesus added a new law and said, by the way, God and I have stopped recognizing most divorces and we're only going to recognize the ones that come from infidelity from now going forward. Or he was making the same point that he made multiple times in that book and even in that chapter, which was, if your heart is wrong, you commit it. I don't care if you try to cover it up with legalism. If, to you married couples, if you are married and you see someone else that you want to be with and you just go be with them, what do we call that? Adultery. If you see someone else that you want to be with, and instead of going and being with them while married, you quickly get a divorce and then go marry them, is your heart any different? No. But according to the Pharisees, you were totally fine. But Jesus said, no. If you divorce and remarry. Oh, and then he clarified. Except for the one who was who their spouse was unfaithful, why? Was he making a certain rule that says those are the only divorces we, we being he and God acknowledge? Or was he saying obviously that person's heart was not adulterous, therefore when they are not adulterer? Just food for thought, I felt like God quickened to me to share this with you today. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said those days of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. I want to say this. Whatever sin you committed, whatever sin, including the sin of adultery, you can repent and you can be right. King David, what sin did he commit? Murder. It's interesting, within the church body, within different denominations, that we understand forgiveness for murder. We understand forgiveness for all of these things. But because of a misunderstanding of why that person was adulterous, we look at people who were divorced and say, you can't repent of that. The Catholic Church actually tells people, oops, I shouldn't have mentioned it, a particular denomination, per says, if you have remarried, you're not actually married. And if you want to be right, you have to live as brother and sister. If you have a family with that second person, you're still married to the per first person because they decided that God never recognized any divorce ever. But Jesus saw the woman at the well who'd been married five times and said, you've had five husbands, not one husband and five affairs. So yes, God did recognize each subsequent marriage and divorce. And for 1,500 years, they followed what that said. What did God say? He said that just like every other sin, the sin of adultery is a heart issue. If you are married and you want to be with somebody else and you use divorce to try to get free, to go be with someone else, you are an adulterer. We don't care which side of the divorce decree you did something. You have sinned. Period. The bad news is your trick didn't work. The good news is 
Just like every other sin, you can repent. You are not disqualified from God's forgiveness. And in some of your cases, you've been told by people because of what that other person did, it is a perversion when you say, you know what, I don't know where I stand with God because I don't know what that other person did. I've talked to people and they say, you know what, my spouse left me and I've been told that if they were unfaithful, then we're divorced. But if they weren't unfaithful, then I'm still married to them. And it's been 25 years, they left, they've gone and remarried, but you know, are we still married in God's eyes? I don't know. So their right standing with God in the event that they want to remarry or have remarried, doesn't have anything to do with their heart. It has to do with what that person did that they don't know about. I've heard someone say, you know what, I know where they were, I know which hotel they went to, but he says they just talked, so what do I do? Why? Why would my right standing with God be dependent on their motives and their actions? I'm not an adulterer because of what they did or didn't do. I'm an adulterer if my heart was adulterous. And if my heart was adulterous, I need to seek repentance. And I can find repentance. You can find repentance. You are not irrevocably uh, disqualified under those circumstances. It's been said that in our church, people can kill their wife, serve time, and still be, not in this church, but in some churches, still serve as a pastor. But if they divorced them, they couldn't. That's not right. That comes from a misunderstanding. You are gifted. You are called. That calling and that gift are still there, and God is waiting to rise, bring it back to life when you choose to walk worthy of that call. Are you guys ready? I went a little bit over. I am sorry. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing on each and every person who's here today. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our remembrance the times that you showed us our calling and our gifts. Lord, I pray that you would stir those things in each and every one of us tonight. Lord, I pray that we would not be tempted to compare those to others, but that we would uh, recognize the value of what you have given us. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.